Father, we do thank you so much for what you've given us today, your truth, your kindness, your grace. We do pray, Lord, that we would be dedicated to knowing your word, obeying your word, and then proclaiming your word to the ends of the earth. Lord, it is our great privilege to do this this morning, to commit ourselves to your word. We ask that your word would go into us, make a change in us, cause in us holy desires. Lord, I pray this is true for all of us who are believers here, all of us who follow you. Change us, continue to call us to follow you. And Lord, for those who don't know you, we pray that this would move in them a desire to follow Jesus. Lord, thank you for what you've given us. Teach us your truth right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a true joy and blessing to study the Word again today. Really, to sing and study and fellowship around His Word is such a, a privilege for us. Such a great joy we have. So let's get into the Word today. There's a lot to do, a lot to cover here in Matthew chapter 27. We're making our way with Jesus to the cross. And what is so clear and becoming more and more clear is the utter perfection, the holiness of our Savior and the utter depravity of mankind. It can be quite a chore going through the passion of Christ. Essentially, you're slogging through the worst of human evil, one horrifying action, one depraved individual after the next. And worst of all, all this sin is against the only innocent, truly innocent person to ever live, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who has so much mercy, so much love and kindness, had healed tens of thousands, had fed tens of thousands, taught and cared and wept over so many people. In fact, the only harsh thing he really ever did was to preach against sin, particularly the sin and oppression of the religious elite of that day. What was the response of these religious leaders? should have been repentance. But instead, it was envy, envy so great they had to have him killed. Verse 18 of Matthew 27, even Pilate, a pagan governor, could see this sin. It says he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So even a godless, self-preserving Roman politician could see all the sin it took to put Jesus on the cross. Pontius Pilate, even a pagan governor, knew what was right and wrong here. Clearly, Jesus was entirely innocent. And it was the religious leaders and joining soon with them, the crowd who were sinning. But don't be deceived about Pilate. Matthew says it very plainly down in verse 26 that Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. What's astonishing about Pilate's evil, Pilate's role, is that as far as human standards, he was innocent, maybe even in some sense righteous to an extent. But Matthew and the other gospel writers put him alongside all these other people, all these other vile sinners who were directly culpable for killing the Son of God. So this week and next week at least, we're going to look carefully at this man, the Roman governor of Judea, and that day his name was Pontius Pilate. What we will learn is that though by human standards he is innocent, by divine standards he is guilty. Innocent before man, guilty before 
God. What we will learn is that man's standard of innocence and guilt is indeed false, much like we saw with the remorse of Judas. It falls short. It's devoid of a genuineness. It is devoid of something true about the heart. And it's my prayer is that from looking at this negative example, Pontius Pilate, we will learn to genuinely love and worship Jesus even more. Okay, let's read this. I want to begin in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2, and then skip to our technically our text, which is verses 11 through 26. I'll read 1 and 2, and then skip to 11 through 26. Follow along as I read this out loud for us. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. And when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner from a prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides... While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. And the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. If you'll permit me, I want to begin this morning with an illustration that I've used before, an illustration that I used some years ago when we were studying the book of Romans. It become apparent it flows really from what Paul said about justification in the book of Romans. Imagine with me, if you will, a man who is convicted of a crime and sent to prison, gets to prison, and realizes pretty quickly that prison is a boring place. He sends a note to his wife. He says, honey, I'm very bored. Can you send me some things to do while I'm here? She decides, well, maybe him and the other prisoners could sit down for a good board game. And she takes Monopoly, and she packages Monopoly, sends it into him after the check. Of course, he gets this game Monopoly. 
and realizes how stupid the game is. But then before he throws the whole game away, he realizes I can use the cash in this game as tender, as tradable tender here among the prisoners. In fact, he sent a note to his wife. He said, why don't you send 10 or 20 more Monopoly games and I'm going to create a little banking system here, a little scheme here among the prisoners and we're going to use this Monopoly money as tender among ourselves to buy and sell and trade. And sure enough, in his time there, he became sort of the banker and he became very wealthy. You could use that money to buy cigarettes, I suppose, an extra blanket, maybe even a shiv. Use that money to buy just about anything you wanted. Well, it come to, came to the day for him to be released and he, of course, by this time was a very wealthy man in that prison and he gathered all his belongings together, which would include a big pile of Monopoly money. He takes that money, shoves it in a bag, goes out of his prison, puts on his civilian clothes, and the first visit he wants to go is to go to the bank. He goes to the bank and he tells the teller, hey, I, I'm getting ready to deposit millions of dollars. You probably need a, to get a, a manager. A manager comes out. Some others come out to see this transaction. He pulls out the bag. He unzips it. and He dumps a bunch of Monopoly money on the counter to the mockery of everyone else. Well, the point of this illustration is to demonstrate the difference between human morality and the divine moral holiness required for a person to have a relationship with God and get into heaven. What's morally approved on earth is not the same currency as what is required to get into heaven. This is an illustration of the doctrine of total depravity. And David and the Apostle Paul said, there is none good, not even one. They don't mean humans are incapable of any morality whatsoever. They don't mean that humans cannot produce any kind of currency or moral tender on their own. I mean, even Hitler didn't kick his dog and beat his mistress every time he saw them. The mob, the mafia, these are people who are responsible for some of society's greatest ills, but they're also known to have respect for family and have some level of honor and loyalty. The doctrine of total depravity is not that every human being is doing everything they can to be as evil as they possibly can all the time. What it means that is unless a person is regenerated, he does not have the moral currency the holiness to require, required to enter heaven. His works are dead, Paul says. They are worthless as moral tender. Presenting your human morality to get to heaven is like trying to deposit monopoly money in a bank. Why? Because even on the surface, human level, even if these good, good works in some ways work in our system, they simply work in our prison system. They don't work in terms of the holiness required for heaven. So Paul taught and John taught and Peter taught, all in line with what we heard from John the Apostle recording what Jesus taught. And we don't get to heaven based on our own righteousness. We must have perfect holiness applied to our account by the Holy Spirit. Again, we 
learned this in Romans, that first God must do a work in someone's heart, spirit must come into them and regenerate them, then you finally can do something that's actually motivated by the Holy Spirit, not just surface morality, not just human morality, but you can actually do something that is divinely motivated. And the first thing that you do once regenerated is that you come to God in repentance and faith. And when you express that repentance of faith, God then justifies you. He legally applies to you the righteousness of Christ. So that when you stand before God in heaven, you present to Him not your good deeds, not all your righteous things that you feel like you've done. What you present to Him is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say to God, I've trusted in Christ alone. He alone had the holiness. He alone had the righteousness. He alone rose victorious. And I believe in Him, and because of that, God covers you, clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. So let me make it clear. Seemingly good, moral people, if they don't trust in Christ alone, they are not justified. Whatever good they're producing on this earth, though it may look good, though it may be tradable in human terms, it does them no heavenly good. That is why we need the righteousness of Christ to transform and clothe us, a clothing that happens when we have faith in Him. So our human-produced good works are depraved, totally depraved. They're not good enough, not any one of them, to get us to heaven. Well, one great demonstration of this doctrine is none other than Pontius Pilate. He's a man who clearly admired Jesus. He is a man who understood that Jesus was guiltless. He is a, a man who, thanks to his wife, had, had some level of gut feeling or intuition that Jesus was right, that Jesus should not be punishment. He knew that Jesus was innocent and blameless. You could say even in some way he, he venerated Jesus. He praised Him, at least in a mild way, with His lips. And because He did all that, all those human good works, in the end... Pilate took merit, and he asserted, he declared himself to be innocent. Again, that may be true from the human standard. People could look at Pilate and say his hands are truly washed of this whole affair. It wasn't his fault. He's good. He's innocent. But in, again, in Matthew's narrative, he simply listed to us as another vile, evil person on a growing list of people who are doing things to put Jesus on the cross. Again, I point you to that verse, the end of the section 26. Pilate had him scourged and delivered him over to be crucified. Well, that's the theme of this section, a false morality. Innocent on a human, fleshly perspective, yet guilty before God. And boy, what an amazingly pointed application for all of us. How many people, how many people in the human race believe that they are guilty before God. It's almost zero percent. No one thinks like that. That's why it takes regeneration. It takes the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to that. How many th people think it's their fault Jesus went to the cross? Unless you're a Christian, almost none. It's not my fault. I didn't live back then. What do I have to do with this? Almost nobody thinks that. I'm not some kind of some kind of horrible sinner. I love God. I'm moral. Ask anyone. When I go to the pearly gates of heaven, I'll stand before God and 
I'll have some things that I'll tell them that I did, and I'll also say, God, I also have references. Ask anybody who knows me. They, like, they think I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things in life. God says to you, I don't take monopoly money. You can't make that deposit here. Only those covered with the perfection, the holiness of Christ may enter. That's the only moral currency I accept. All right, we have some history to mow through as we talk about Pilate, some history that we want to study and learn, sort of helps us understand Pilate's motivation and what was happening here. As best we can tell, this begins, our passage begins at about 5 a.m. when the uh, ecclesiastical or the, the religious, so to speak, church uh, side of his trial was over. The, the religious leaders had tried him. That was summarized in Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. His clerical tri trials, so to speak, were over. It began about 1 or 2 a.m., carried on to about 5, and that's where we get to verse 1. It's about 5, 5.30 in the morning as daytime was arriving. Now, as this light began to shine, the sun began to come up, these religious leaders wanted to get right back to the facade that they had during the daytime, and that is a very religious, godly people. They did all kinds of things at night that were dark, that were surly, that were terrible, but as the light began to shine, they want to make sure and put on their best face again, this facade that they had of religiosity. And so they're trying to rush Jesus through this trial and get him to Pilate and get him crucified as quickly as possible. So they had gone through those three trials at night, and they were now trying to get him before Pilate, the one who had the authority to kill him, particularly on that particular day being it, it being Passover. Well, like the religious trials of Jesus, the Roman trials or the, the political trials were three in number. First before Pilate, then before Herod, and then before Pilate once again. And what is apparent, what is obvious by all accounts, again, is that Jesus is guiltless. None of this was legal. None of this was legitimate. Even when Pilate tried to wash his hands, all of this was false. All of this was a bunch of evil people putting Jesus on the cross. This is the summary. Um, Matthew gives us essentially a summary of those three trials. You read Matthew, it doesn't break down those three trials. I'll show you this here in a moment. Matthew doesn't break it down, but he gives us, just like he did with the, with the religious trials, he gives us a summary, really, of the three political trials. Who was Pontius Pilate? Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea. This is the southern half of Israel. And, of course, Judea is where Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was, the temple was. All the powerful and religious people of Israel lived in Jerusalem. Uh, Pilate governed there for about 10 years, from A.D. 26 to 36. And he governed under the Roman emperor Tiberius. At some point, and I mentioned this a moment ago, at some point, Matthew doesn't record this, Pilate heard that the governor of Galilee was there, and that's Herod, not Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, and learning of this, he sends Jesus to go before Herod, he spends some time before Herod speaking, and then Herod sort of has the same conclusion as Pilate, there's no really legal thing that he's done wrong, and he sends him back to Pilate. That's at the very end of our text where Pilate then 
puts Jesus before the crowd and washes his hand. Well, Pilate was this interesting character. He's likely a, a fellow who purchased or politicked his way up the ladder, gained actually an, an important designation in the Roman world, and that is friend of Caesar. That's a technical phrase. He was called the friend of Caesar, which may explain why Caesar would send him to go to govern the Jews. You see, the Jews were known for rebellion, for revolting, for doing things a little bit differently. Between the Zealots and the Essenes and the Pharisees and others, you had a number of people who were sort of constantly stirring up uh, the, the crowd against the Roman rule. And so there was always sort of this, this tentative position the Romans had with the Jews. Sometimes the Romans would be a little more flexible. Sometimes they would allow the Jews to do certain things just to keep them quiet. Sometimes the Romans would stamp out any kind of insurrection. And of course, they would eventually do that in about 70 A.D. and expel the Jews from Israel, and they would not return until 1948. So Caesar sent his friend Pontius Pilate to go get control of the situation there in, in Judea. Now, I suppose in effort to establish his authority, Pilate did some very foolish, ill-advised things right from the beginning. The first thing that he did is he held this grand parade, which a parade in of itself in the arrival of a new governor is not that unusual. What was unusual is that for four governors before him, they, knowing that the Jews were monotheistic, meaning they only worshiped one God, they didn't worship Caesar, they didn't worship the, the pantheon of Roman, Greco-Roman gods, they would actually remove the image of Caesar atop the banners and the flags. On top of the banners and flags, there would be a, an eagle, and there would also be an image of Caesar, because they, of course, they believed that Caesar was at least part divine, part God. And they worshipped Caesar, called the Caesar cult, actually. Most governors, at least the four governors before Pilate, would remove that just to not stir everyone up on this very supposedly happy day as the new governor came in and took, took office. Pilate refused to do that. He thought maybe perhaps that he would be doing Tiberius a great favor by leaving his image on there. And of course, there was a great riot in the city. All of his banners and all of his flags had these graven images, and they had these flags and banners posted all over Jerusalem, the holy city, and people began to revolt. Huge protests. You can think of some of the protests that we've seen in our day, something like that. A mass of protesters shouting, breaking things, throwing firebombs and so forth. Eventually they, they followed Pilate around shouting and throwing things and they, they followed him to a great amphitheater. And there he addressed all these protesters and he told them that if they didn't concede and let him keep that on his flags, that they would that he would have his soldiers take off their heads. And all the Jews called his bluff by stretching out their necks. And Pilate realized he'd made a big mistake. He couldn't do it. He couldn't let word get back to Rome that in the first day that he was there, he killed a bunch of defenseless people in an amphitheater. So he gave in and had those images removed. The second thing that Pilate did was a few years later, he wanted to create a better water system in Jerusalem. His, some of you have been there to Israel, right up on the Temple Mount. His palace is on the corner of the Temple Mount. 
and uh, he wanted to provide better water. And I think everyone was in favor of this. It seemed like this is something, you know, who doesn't like a good public work? It's something that gives a little better access to water, a little faster water, a little cleaner water. But he had his men, in order to fund the project, he had his men go over and take all the temple offering to fund it. How do you think that went over? Not good. Another riot. This time, Pilate was not merciful at all. In fact, he had a bunch of people beaten. In fact, he had a number of people killed. The message that he did this was sent off to Rome, and presumably, we don't have any record of this, but presumably he was reprimanded. Diplomatically, he was supposed to bring them under Rome, not with a sword. Had Caesar wanted them under a sword, he would have just sent a general and an army to go in and beat and kill them until they came to submission. He wanted to do this politically. Pilate's third major blunder happened. We officially moved into the palace, ostensibly after the aqueduct was put there. He decided that his protection detail, again, spilling out onto the Temple Mount, his protection detail would show a, a hand of force by putting the image of Caesar on their shields. Again, another riot broke out, and this time the Jews were smart. They sent messages to Tiberius, and Tiberius himself sent a message back to Pilate and said, get that image off of those shields. Embarrassing for Pilate, to say the least. And all that to say this, the last thing Pilate wanted was another riot. That gets us to his motivation here, doesn't it? His actions that day, here's a, here's a man who's terrified of his losing his political power. Here's a man who's terrified of being embarrassed in front of Caesar again. His motives ultimately were not that in that of worshiping Christ or honoring Christ or believing in Christ. They were motivated by his own sense of self-preservation. This is the true morality of anybody who shows sort of a surface morality without the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. It shows some sort of positive move to Christ if God is not behind that movement. There's no real morality there. There's no genuine holiness there. It is yet another form of sin, mixed with bad motives, mixed with unknown sins. Well, what do we see in Pilate that is good but ultimately deficient in terms of his following and understanding Jesus? I have written down five things. We'll look at the first two, hopefully today. And uh, then the next ones next week and possibly the week after that. So what do we see in Pilate? First of all, we see admiration without love. Admiration without love. Follow the story there, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, You have said so. And when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, we want to give you, I want to give you a little fuller story here. So keep your finger there in Matthew 27 and turn, if you will, to John, John chapter 18. In John 18, it gives us a few more details, some details that Matthew doesn't give us. In fact, 
I remind you that I said that a lot of times these gospel writers, depending on what they're trying to accomplish, they'll give in detail certain parts and they'll summarize other parts of Jesus' ministry. There's no way they could give every detail of every little story in Jesus' life. John here is giving us a little more detail than Matthew is for this time. Look down at verse 28 of John 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now, we've covered this, right? I mean, this is exactly the moment, verses 1 and 2, back in Matthew 27. This is verses 1 and 2. They, they bind him, they lead him away from the high priest's house, and they lead him to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. Again, this pretense of holiness. They could eat Passover. Verse 29, so Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. These religious leaders are pretty bold. Maybe they know the tenuous position of Pilate. Pretty demanding. They don't even answer Pilate's question. They don't give him any answer about the charges. He asks him, you want me to kill this guy? You want me to execute this guy? What's the charge? What's your accusation? They don't answer him. Very pridefully, they say, don't, you don't worry about it. You don't worry your little head, Pilate. We would not have brought him to you if we had not done our diligence and accused him and convicted him properly. He deserves to die. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not law for us to put anyone to death, particularly under the Passover law. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And Pilate said, well, if you find him guilty, why don't you execute him? They can't, especially if they want to maintain their hypocrisy, the, the facade of righteousness on Passover. We can't kill him. John reported that Jesus had predicted this, and he's looking back to John chapter 3. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, right, he has to be lifted up. There's a certain way that Jesus must die. He can't die in the typical Jewish way on a non-Jewish uh, non-feast day in Jewish calendar. He had, that would be by stoning. He had to die by being lifted up. He had to be shamed and lifted up for all to see. It had to, he had to die in, in a Roman execution, not a Jewish execution. Now, this is all taking place, as John pointed this out, this is all taking place to fulfill what Jesus had predicted about himself, the kind of death he was going to die. At this point, again, this is sort of piecing everything together. Luke uh, says that the Jewish leaders decided to finally make an accusation. So here are these Jewish leaders. They don't give any kind of reason. They just say, well, you know, we've already convicted him. You should kill him. Pilate pushes back against that. And they respond by articulating their accusation. Again, this is from Luke 23. You don't have to turn there. I'll just mention it. At that point, they mentioned three accusations. They said, first of all, 
Jesus is perverting the nation. By that they mean he's an insurrectionist. He's stirring people up. He's causing widespread rebellion. Secondly, the second accusation we have, Pilate, is that he has told people not to pay their taxes. And third, he is trying to become some sort of king. Now, first of all, none of those things are true. If you've been with us through our study of Matthew, you know that none of these things are true, at least in the way that they presented them to Pilate. Jesus was entirely righteous. In fact, he, he snuffed out a couple of attempts. People wanted to make him king, and he, he snuffed it out. He said, that is not the kind of king I am. He encouraged people to pay their taxes, to render to Caesar. In fact, he himself paid taxes. Render to Caesar what are Caesar's. And the Lord, what is the Lord's? And the kind of king he claimed to be was not a physical king with an army. He was not trying to be a king in competition with Pilate or any other king in that time. So first of all, none of those accusations were even remotely correct. Secondly, it was a lie. You remember the, 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 the trials that Jesus just had with the religious leaders. It had nothing to do with these things. They didn't mention these things at all. What did they accuse him of? Blasphemy. But they knew that Pilate wouldn't care about blasphemy against a God he didn't believe in. So they had to confer among themselves, come up with some false things, make them up on the spot, and then repeat them to Pilate. So now Pilate has to think about this. He can't have an insurrectionist, a rebel who's telling people to not pay their taxes, so he had to get to the bottom of this. Pilate brought Jesus to speak with him on his own, answer for these crimes, and that's what we see in John 18, 33 to 38. And Jesus essentially says to them, listen, I'm, I'm a king of a kingdom that is not of this world. If, if this kingdom were of this world, I would be having fighters and warriors and soldiers who were coming to fight you. I'm not doing that. This is a spiritual kingdom. My people are not by, marked by fighting and making warfare and taking land. My people are marked by the fact that they listen to me and follow what I say. So in verse 38 there in John 18, Pilate and Jesus go back outside and Pilate announced to the religious leaders and all the people there, I find no guilt in him. That's a legal declaration. That's like what you see in the, in the, uh, t on the television in the courtroom. Not guilty. I find no guilt in this man. At this juncture, back in Luke, again, piecing this all together, Pilate remembered that Jesus was a Galilean. He realizes he's not making headway with these people. They want him dead, so he thinks, oh, I can just hand this off. Jesus is a Galilean. I can hand this off. It just so happens that Herod the Tetrarch, the, the ruler of Galilee, is just across the way. He's here for all the celebrations, and so I can just send Jesus over to him to have their trial, and they can deal with it in the Galilean way. And so he sends him over to Herod. Herod, of course, was enamored with Jesus, just like he was enamored with John the Baptist, whom he beheaded. He has this little conversation with Jesus. Again, this is Luke 23. But he ends up coming to the same conclusion as Pilate did. I don't find any guilt in this guy. Jesus may be a lot of things, but he's not guilty of what they're saying. So he sent Jesus back to Pilate. 
All right, this brings us up to speed. And go back to Matthew 27. This brings us to verses 11 to 14. All this has happened, all these accusations. Jesus has had this conversation already with Pilate. He's spoken with him about the kind of kingdom that he's built and building. When we get to verse 14, Jesus refused to now respond out loud in front of the crowd to these trumped-up, illegal, truly ridiculous charges. He refused to even honor these charges with a response. He said nothing, verse 14, and the result... Pilate is, quote, greatly amazed. And Jesus to Pilate is a fascinating character. It's likely he knew of Jesus' popularity among the people. Clearly, he is a threat to these failing leaders. He probably does not like the Sanhedrin any more than anyone else does. These people are jealous of his power, jealous of his popularity, and I'd imagine... This makes Jesus all the more amazing. This carpenter from a rural town up north is stirring up all of Israel, not with being someone who's fighting, someone who's causing problems. Someone He's going around healing people, blessing people. And that is a threat to the religious elite. This is an amazing, amazingly powerful man. And Pilate is indeed amazed. What kind of man could cause such devotion? What kind of man could stir up such hatred among the religious elite? But amazement and admiration cannot be confused with love, right? People the world over have respect for Jesus. People the world over respect His teaching, respect His morals, His activity. In fact, I would go far, so far as to say there are many people in this world that believe Jesus was some, some sort of spiritual person, perhaps even a, a miracle worker. Spiritual man, some divine connection. And so many people have a deep admiration and respect for Jesus. They're greatly amazed, just like Pilate was, but they don't love Jesus. What is it it to love Jesus? First and foremost, it's to accept, receive Him for who He really is, the Lord, the Savior. Take that to heart. Believe it. Place it the deepest recesses of who you are. Second, to love Jesus is to do toward Him what you would do toward anyone whom you would love, and that is to to think of Him often, to dwell on Him, to get to know Him, to think about Him, meditate on Him day and night. Third, to love Him is, is to fear Him, and that means to worship Him, but also to fear dishonoring Him. So you're concerned about what he says and what he does doesn't mean you have to be a scholar, doesn't mean you have to be some sort of academic, some reader, but you have a desire to just simply know him and love him and fear him. Other things that would signify love for him, I'll mention one more, is to seek to have an actual relationship with him. I know this is sort of weird to those of you new to this, a relationship with some guy who died and supposedly was raised many years ago. And Jesus says, I want you to abide in me. How are we supposed to abide in you, John 15? Let his words abide in us. Beyond just having the data of Jesus, beyond just being amazed and have some sort of respect for Jesus, you actually want to have this relationship, a friendship. 
Well, this brings us to point number two, comprehension without relationship. Comprehension without relationship. Look there in Matthew again. Look there at verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Maybe you want to underline or put a circle around that phrase. He knew. Pilate had the facts. He knew. Pilate was not deceived one bit by these snakes, these religious leaders. No way. He saw right through them. It's pretty amazing. I think Pilate was pretty smart, pretty savvy here. He's not up on all the Jewish laws and rules and regulations. He's not up on all the relationships, the interwoven relationships, but somehow he picked up on this. The Sanhedrin, the priests, the scribes of various religio-political groups like Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, this was all just plain jealousy. They saw Jesus in Jesus a threat, and he saw this. They, They were envious of him. He was powerful. He was popular. He had all the things that they wanted and couldn't have. He saw through all that, and he knew. Matthew says, at the feast, that means the feast of Passover, he would release a prisoner. Every year, Passover, Pilate would allow the crowd to choose a prisoner whom he would release. And I think oftentimes, you think about how the Roman Empire worked, oftentimes they would have a prisoner there who may be somewhat innocent. Maybe they weren't as involved in the mobs and stuff that had taken place. They just were a political prisoner. And so Pilate was accustomed to doing this, and the people were accustomed to picking a prisoner. Maybe Pilate did it because he wanted to win back the Jewish favor. Here it says he had a uh, notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Notorious means notable for all the wrong reasons. Notable in a bad way. It's kind of like the word infamous. Famous, but for all the wrong reasons. Just as a little grammarian, don't be using the word infamous for something that's famous. Just use the word famous. Infamous means famous for the bad reasons. This man was notorious. He was notable for the bad reasons. Mark implies that this man murdered somebody. John added that he had robbed somebody. Do you get the kind of quality human being we're talking about here? And we've seen this. We've seen this even in our own country in riots. You know, there are a few people that are involved that are there marching for justice or what's right or wrong, and they're protesting or whatever, but it seems those kind of protests are a magnet for slime balls like Barabbas. They're not there. For any, whatever, some, some of these people are even hired to go to these things, and they, they go there to cause unrest. They go there to, to rob. They go there, oh, I think if there's a, some big protest, maybe I can bash in a window and steal something. Now, this is what's happened. This guy has been a part of these protests that have turned into mobs, and he's killed some people. He's robbed some people. That's what Barabbas was there for. The other two with him, marked for crucifixion, they were also notorious criminals. It is possible, and this is just a a guess, 
It is possible that Pilate decided to, to focus on Barabbas because he was the worst of the three. Maybe he thought, if I pick Barabbas, there's no way they're going to want Barabbas back in amongst them. Of course they're going to let Jesus go at that point, and so he picked the worst. And we don't know that this is for certain, but here, here as a murderer and a thief, it's likely that he was the worst one among the three criminals being crucified that day. So remember what's happened. Jesus stood before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod, by the way, Herod's men mocked him and put a, a, what looked like a, a kingly robe around him and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate questioned him some more. That's where we have that discussion. And then Jesus brings, or Pilate brings Jesus out before the people. He knew about the envy of the religious leaders. He knew about the love of the people towards Jesus. He knew Jesus, even his own logic, his own mind. He knew Jesus from speaking to him. And presumably, Pilate thought to himself, there's no way that these people are going to choose to crucify Jesus rather than Barabbas. They came out of his palace to the crowd, asked the crowd that had gathered there, verse 17, whom do you want me to release, Barabbas, the criminal, or Jesus, the anointed? Take your pick. Matthew tells us, verse 18, exactly what I just said, that he asked because he knew the truth of Jesus and his accusers. Well, to his surprise, they scream for the release of Barabbas. Evidently, the religious leaders had gotten to him while he was away, perhaps, while he was away speaking with Herod and then in with Pilate again. The religious leaders had stirred up the crowd knowing that perhaps Pilate would offer to release somebody. Whatever you do, don't let them, don't let him release Jesus. They scream for the release of Barabbas and at the same time, scream for the crucifixion of Jesus. And we'll talk a little more about that next time. What is astonishing here is that Pilate had knowledge. He understood. He comprehended. Not everything, but he, he understood some basics of what was going on. He understood the injustice of this all. He understood that Jesus did not, Jesus the anointed one, did not deserve to be killed. Multiple times he calls him the Christ, the anointed one. But clearly... It was not his Christ. It was not his Messiah. He, he was not even the Savior. He was just, in Pilate's mind, one among many. Well, let's wrap this up. Pilate was a man who, by human standards, was innocent. He's innocent because he at least had some sort of admiration of Jesus. He's innocent because he, he knew some things and, and affirmed some things about Jesus. He positively identified with, with Jesus and the truth about him. But those things, devoid of a loving relationship, made him just as guilty as a Sanhedrin that day. We must ask our own selves, we must look at our own hearts. Do I have simple admiration or do I have real love? Do I have just a knowledge of the facts, comprehension, or do I have a relationship? If your answer is, I don't really have a relationship. I don't really have love. If that's you, you can turn to Jesus even now. Believing in Him, giving your life to Him. And you rejoice knowing that as you seek that, God will indeed justify you by what Christ accomplished and grant you that relationship. Let's pray all of us would seek to know Him more in this way. Father, we thank You for Your Word. 
for the truth that you've given us. We thank you that you have revealed to us all the inner workings of what happened that. Thank you that, that night. We thank you for um, even this negative example of Pilate. He calls us to think about our own hearts, whether or not we are genuine in our love and relationship with Jesus. Lord, I thank you for what you've given us and your truth. I pray that we would always be responsive and sensitive to what you say to us. Mold our hearts to be in obedience to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, stand with me and let me read you a benediction. This is inspired out of Romans 10. Now may we all go knowing that He will grant us far beyond what we can ask or think because we have believed, confessed, and in our hearts trusted in Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, and friend. To Him be the glory. Amen. Amen.